Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. In Genesis, we also have made this morning, there's probably copies left at the information center. You can slip out, grab the outline, bring it back in. Of anybody who has 100% retention for notes, I encourage notes. Uh, I don't know of anybody who has 100% retention ability. So I encourage you to take notes. This is made available on our website, usually within the day, and it's also on podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to AC Podcast. Uh, you will be able to get it in podcast form as well. It's advantageous because this is where the rubber meets the road, where most of us live. It does it not. We're talking about the origin of life. So this is more of a teaching we're entering into weeks, I don't know how long it's going to last, 10 to 12 weeks, the origin of teaching of, or the origin of life, the teaching of the origin of life, and Genesis is the beginning, is the origin, uh, it's the origin really of salvation, it's the origin of everything, it is, it links to everything. So you're, you're getting that as we go through, I know that has been something that, you know, it's like, well, seriously, is Genesis really the origin? Uh-huh. <laughs> you will get that as you, week after week, you're going to get that today. We're going to understand the origin of evil. I mean, that's a big philosophical topic. And, but we're going to be sharing some things that I believe is going to connect the dots when it comes, and it doesn't have to be complicated. If it's complicated, even I won't get it, okay? So it's got to be not complicated. If I get it, you can get it. And so I attempt, when I teach... I teach at that level, at the level that if you were a grade five person sitting here, you should be able to understand this. As a matter of fact, some of those that during this teaching, just for your information, some of those that have, I've heard some of the most profound responses in the last few weeks of this teaching have been from our teenagers. Uh, They are, for the most part, they get this because this is what they're facing in school. And it's like the first time hearing stuff uh, and I believe maybe in all of us that there's, there's a number of things that are firsts here because this is not, obviously you're not going to get this in school. Unless you go to a Christian school, you will, uh, or curriculum, Christian curriculum. I'm going to start off with some heavenly humor. Thank you for those that are now helping me out, <laughs> sending me heavenly humor. That's today. Here's some heavenly humor from you, two of them. So if you don't like it, it's not my fault. (laughs) Question. Did Eve ever have a date with Adam? Answer. No, just an apple. (laughs) Now we know it wasn't just an... Okay. Adam didn't really swallow the apple. It got stuck in his throat. Adam's apple. Okay, sorry. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly 
not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. The title of the focus today is all of chapter 3. This is a big one. This chapter, to me, is the saddest chapter in the Bible. The fall. Father in heaven, we will not understand this only with their minds. Unless there is a marriage of our minds and our spirit, the minds and our understanding, the minds and our soul, that, Lord, we will only grasp this from an academic level. God, I pray that we, we can't, that we not overestimate our cognitive levels here this morning, that we embrace this also with the heart, an attitude of receiving words as if they're words of life. That, Lord, these are not simply something we want to tuck away for an argument. These are things which gives rise to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let it be this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Evil. I'm going to give you just headlines, just outlines, and then we fill in. Evil. When God created moral beings, there was no actual evil. In fact, evil is not a thing in itself. You've heard the argument, if God is good, how could he create evil? This can be easily explained. It really is. Evil is not a thing in itself. You can't create evil. Evil is real. Evil is a privation. Everybody say privation. Evil is a privation. A privation definition means the absence of a quality that normally is. A privation. We get the word deprived. Evil is a deprivation or a privation of something good, something that ought to be. For instance, let me give you some illustrations. Murder. Murder is the privation of a human life. It's the removal of life. That's evil. It's the removal of something good. Adultery is the privation of a marriage. You following? So evil is not a thing. You don't create evil. Evil is a privation of something good. Back last July, I preached a message entitled, God is Good. Uh, I preached it at the end of our children's camp. And it is still on the website. I checked it out to see if it's still there. It's still there. It's called God is Good. If you want to understand about the essence of goodness, I invite you to go back to that. I'm not going to go through it again. There was something that I, I had never preached that one before. I put that together, and to me, it, it was wonderful. I've gone back to it a number of times, just the study of what it means God is good. Now, we talk about evil, privation, absence of a quality that normally is. Good, on the other hand, is fundamental. Good can exist in and of itself. Evil cannot 
exist in and of itself. Evil has to attack good. God created goodness. He is good. All things were good. He didn't create evil. I'll explain how that all comes in. He didn't create evil. Evil is a parasite on good. Let me give an illustration. A wound. What's a wound? A wound can't be a wound unless it attacks a healthy body. A wound is not an essence of itself. It's a privation of something good. Evil is a privation of something good. A healthy body. Therefore, since evil is not a thing, God did not create evil. Now, here's what he did do. Next point is called the power of contrary choice. God created Adam and Eve, and as well as the angels. Adam and Eve, the angels... And he created all of that with the power of contrary choice. Everybody say power of contrary choice. Okay, that's important. Power of contrary choice. This means they had the power to make a choice contrary to their nature. The power of contrary choice was good. As a matter of fact, it's better than good. The power of contrary choice is best. The power of contrary choice was a good with no actual evil attached to it. But it has the possibility of evil. God saw that a greater good would come from the power of contrary choice. A greater good, the best, in that the result would be creatures who genuinely love God freely. Out of choice, freely. Actually, real, true love must be free. Or it can't be real, true love. Illustration. If I took my computer and I programmed in my computer to flash, I love you, Wayne, I love you, Wayne, I love you, Wayne, would that be genuine love? It'd be pretty cocky for me. But the computer doesn't love me. You see what I'm saying? It has no choice. I programmed it. If there's no choice, there's no real love. And when God created mankind and the angels, he gave a choice. You have to. The power of contrary choice. There is no true love if there's no true choice. And we argue that. Out there, we argue that. A loving God wouldn't give that choice. Yes, he would. Otherwise, you are a robot. Otherwise, you have no choice. Would a real loving God do anything less? You have a choice. You have to have a choice. We all have voluntary will. We call it free will. Not to be misconstrued with free willy. And in our free will, very many evils can cause the privation of good. For God to superimpose himself against this type of evil, he would need to remove free will if he took away evil. Your choice of evil. I mean, would atheists, agnostics, those who contest against the things of God, would they really be happy with the solution of no free will? Because that's what they argue. Let's, let's walk through that. If God stops, because they say if, if, if there's a God, then he's an evil God because there's suffering and there's evil in the world. If God stops evil murderers, should he also not stop evil thoughts, which Jesus said is behind the evil deeds? 
Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Out of the heart. So if God's going to stop evil murders, he's got to stop your evil thoughts too. Because you've actually committed it before you did it in your thoughts. Now, if this is okay, then let's keep going with this scenario. Would not then God also need to stop all evil thoughts of those who don't believe in God? First commandment, have no other gods before me. So, there's an evil heart that has placed you above everything else. False gods, evil thought. And if God is going to stop all evil deeds, he needs to stop evil thought. That includes the thought of not believing in God. Maybe God needs to, every time you don't believe him, give you a splitting headache every time you think an atheistic thought. Now, you carry those through, and you begin to realize you can't do that. I'm sure atheists or agnostics would not be happy if God actually did what they're suggesting. They would protest. Power contrary choice. So why did God create Satan? <laughs> well, I think now we're beginning to put some pieces together. Why did God allow Satan to tempt Eve and Adam? To do what God desires merely because you cannot do otherwise, it has no moral worth to it. To be morally good, the opportunity to do otherwise has to be present. It's called temptation. Temptation is not the sin, but it's when you dwell, desire, and, of course, follow through by acting on. You can study more about this, more in angelology and demonology. There's a lot of horrible stuff out there. I've not gone through a biography in order to give you what maybe is good, um, so I'm not suggesting you Google it because you'll get some really crazies, but uh, that is a teaching that Genesis 3 is really not addressing. But I've had to touch on it in order to understand something about the fall. Because a lot of argument is a good God would not allow evil. Or a good God created evil, therefore that ceases to mean he's good. He's now evil too. And theologically, there's a big problem with that. So to understand that, we've explained it a little bit. Um, you can study a little bit about more the origin of the fall of Lucifer, Satan, um, in Isaiah 14, verse 12 and on. And uh, although Isaiah is talking, given a prophecy regarding the king of Babylon, scholars believe there's a veiled description about the fall of Lucifer in that text. As well, Ezekiel 28, verse 14 on, is another picture from another prophet. Again, speaking of a prophecy against Tyre but, and Tyre's rulership, but scholars say, if you look at it, it begins to talk of the morning star falling. And it speaks of the fall of Satan as God cast him out of heaven and the angels, third of the angels with him. The fall of Satan. First, the Bible tells us that when God finished creation on day six and he rested, he called everything good. So everything that there was was good. So it logically follows that neither Satan nor Adam had fallen yet at the end of the seven-day creation. They had yet to fall. They have not fallen. Because God declared everything good. The fall of Satan, therefore, has fallen after creation week. And I'm going to suggest somewhere between the time of day seven and the birth of the first son from Eve and Adam. Somewhere between day seven and the birth 
of the first son. It's the fall of Adam and Eve. It's the fall of the angelic host. Happened somewhere in there. We don't know the length of time. Months, years, not a whole whack of time. It's not, it's not, we're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking in that period of time because man was told to create in Genesis 1, 28, procreate. And so they began that, but we don't have timing as when that took place. We do know that there was a period in which man and God unbridled relationship walking in the cool of the day in the garden. So somewhere in the fall, we have after creation week, before the first child was born. Uh, we know that the fall of man had to have happened before Cain was born, before the first child was born, before, so maybe during her pregnancy, we don't, or after, or, be, or before that, but not after Cain was born. Uh, and we know that because when Cain was conceived, if you were to flip into the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, here's why we say this. He was conceived with the fallen nature, already in place. We have that in how she named him. In Genesis 4, we're just jumping ahead now. Genesis 4, we're going to get to this two weeks from now. Genesis 4, verse, uh, verse 1. Uh, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, here it is. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, casual readings, we slip over that. With the Lord's help, I have brought forth a man. Begin to unpack that explanation. Eve called her firstborn Cain. I have brought forth a man. She didn't, like she's never, now this is pretty freaky. They've never seen a baby before. Now you think you're awkward with a baby, right? I mean, seriously, they've not seen a baby before. This is the first baby they've seen. And they know the name baby. They know a little one. They don't know what it's going to, you know, what it's going to mean for them sleepless nights. They don't get any of that yet. But she didn't call him baby. She called him man. This big called him man. As a matter of fact, when she said, brought, she didn't call him boy or baby, brought forth and said, you, with the Lord's help. Now that wasn't just that she could see because he helped the baby come out. It's more than that. She is making direct reference to God's promise in Genesis 3.15, and here was God's promise. God promised that from their seed, remember they've already sinned by then. I know we've jumped ahead, we're jumping around, but we've got to understand why she said this. In, in Genesis 3.15, God's promise was that from their, Adam and Eve, from their seed, their seed, their man's seed, their man, a redeemer would come. So that was a promise. Now, she, of course, did not know it wouldn't happen for another 4,000 years. But here's what happened. When Eve brought forth and called him Cain, she says, I have, the Lord has helped bring man, bring the seed to get us back again. Probably she thought Cain was it. Cain was not it. It wouldn't happen for 4,000 more years. She called him Cain. Therefore, sin was already in the nature. How the serpent tempts Eve. Significant because this is consistent. Remember, Satan is not creative. He simply follows what's observed. God creates from nothing. Satan observes and follows suit and attacks. And so his attacks are consistent. They are still the same. They haven't changed over the years. 
And it's this. First of all, three things. Doubting God's word. You come to that text where it says in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Doubting God's word. The serpent says, did God really say? Interesting though, our English language doesn't do this justice. In the original language, it is much more emphatic. He would have said it with this interrogative expressive surprise. Let me try to illustrate this for you. It would have been said like this. Are you to have me believe that God has prohibited you from eating from all these trees? You see the difference? That's how it came out. We can't get that proper unless we add a whole whack. Other larger translations or paraphrases have added that in there. But it's important. Are you to have me believe that God has prohibited you from eating from all these trees? Do you see the interrogation expressed here? I mean, he still does the same thing. How often has the tempter come to you and I and made God's commands seem more onerous than they really were? As if... Oh, how dare he? Doubting God's word. Secondly, adding to God's word. Eve added. We pick up in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent and answering, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Okay, all that's true, but here's, And you must not touch it or you will surely die. She added. That's the second problem. God's word you can't take from, you can't add to. You don't mess with that. Addition is a problem. She added, you must not touch it. Now, having said that, I'm going to give Eve a break. <laughs> because really what she said was pretty much true. <laughs> Think about it. If you touch it, you'll eat it. Right? I mean, if, if, you're told, if you're told, don't, you're not to have that, then in your mind, don't touch it. Right? Come on. Don't touch it. So that's probably what happened with Eve. She just told the serpent the process that she was going through. You don't touch that. So I'm going to cut her a break because I would have probably done the same. Don't touch it. And if you don't touch it, you can't eat it. So don't touch it. Don't go there. For if you touch it, you'll desire it. If you desire it, you'll take it. Now, the other thing we do understand, when the instructions God gave for that tree, he gave directly to Adam. Eve was not around yet, and Adam would have had to pass that command along to Eve. Uh, she did not get it firsthand. The third thing is in regard to the tempting is Satan denying God's word. Satan moves from misquoting or misleading questions to outright lying because he just lied when he said uh, in this part uh, regarding, he responded by saying, verse four, you will not certainly die. He said it like this, I promise you, you won't die. That's what he said. I promise you, you won't die. She said, if I touch it and I eat it, I'll die. That's what God said. And Satan says, I promise you, you won't die. That's an outright lie. He's the father of lies. 
They can be full lies, half lies, any parts of lies, deceptive lies. They're lies. Anything that keeps you from the full truth is a lie. And the picture here is denying God's word. Anything that denies God's word is a lie. Beloved, before you leave our parking lot, he'll be telling you lies. I'm not wishing it. It's just reality. Before you get home, before you finish your lunch, he's telling you lies. You gotta know, bombarding us with lies. Anything, come back to anything denying God's words, whether mentally, physically, family, your direction, your purpose, your life, your calling, whatever it is. Satan moves into this place of outright lie. He is attacking the very character and nature of God. Note the lie. He says, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Here's his methodology. Three things. I'm going to tell you quick. I'm going to go on. Number one, Satan's methodology is the same today. Number one, raise doubts as to the wisdom, justice, and love of God. Raise doubts. Starts with the doubts. Number two, make a direct contradiction to God's word. And number three, Claim that disobedience to God will result in your higher good. If you don't do that, you're going to be better off. That's the way it is. The fall. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 teaches there are three broad areas of temptation. This is New Testament. Here they are. Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, number one, the lust of the eyes, number two, the pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. In other words, from the enemy. Okay? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Cleansing Streams Ministry, we unpack that for you. Let's talk about the difference between Adam and Eve's sin. There's a difference. First of all, Eve was deceived. 1 Corinthians 11.3, it says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may, may somehow be led astray. Okay? Eve was deceived. But 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Therefore, Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. So what was Adam? Adam's disobedience was an act of open rebellion against the maker. Eve was tricked and listened to the lie. She, she could have resisted, but she listened to the lie. But Adam openly rebelled against God. Never as he referred to as having been deceived, he chose to go against God. To me, that's a whole lot more serious. And the consequences, the first consequences of the fall, Genesis 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It says they were naked and ashamed. 
This is associated with guilt. It says their fellowship with God was broken. No longer do we have any more evidence of them walking with God in the cool of the day. And it speaks of the sin nature. The sin nature and and essence in all of this comes upon all humanity. Everybody say the word, two words, sin nature. Sin nature. nature. It's important to understand. Sin nature, the nature of sin. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, Adam and his descendants acquire a sin nature. It starts right here. It's a sin nature. The only exception in the history of humankind to the sin nature is who? Jesus Christ, referred to as the last Adam. Here's what happened. That's why the incarnation of Christ is essential. It's essential. Because when you read in Luke 1, 35, it says the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary during her virginal conception. What happened? The Holy Spirit prevented any sin nature from going into Mary. If you are to have Christ born, Jesus born as the Christ, the Messiah, he cannot have sin. And the only way he cannot have sin is he can't come from a man. Because every man's sin has been passed down through. It came down through Adam. And so the Holy Spirit protected Mary from the seed, the man's seed, the corrupted seed that, that uh, Eve spoke of, and was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit, of a woman and of the Holy Spirit. But the sin nature comes down through Adam. So people today do not get their sin natures by sinning. They sin because of their sin nature. People today do not get their sin natures by sinning. It's not because you committed the first sin, you're a sinner. You sin because you're born with sin nature. Now, we can talk about the age of accountability where you now choose, you now understand it, and there is that. You know, babies and and young children, do they go to heaven? There comes an awareness. They have the sin nature, but there comes an awareness. Now you choose the sin nature. And that differs for different ages, but the place of choice being made. Romans 7, 15, now we get it. Romans 7, actually the entire chapter of Romans 7. We just finished doing this a couple weeks ago in our midweek study of Romans 15. I do not, Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Sin nature. Now, you can't just go around blaming everything on your sin nature. (laughs) It's there. But as a child of God, you now have the capacity to not choose it. You now have the capacity to embrace spirit nature, the spirit of God. Outside of the spirit of Christ, you don't. So I want to summarize this. Adam and Eve were created with the ability not to sin. But after the fall, after having sinned, humans, their descendants, had no or have no ability to completely avoid sin. None of us. But, praise God, in the eternal state yet to come, redeemed believers, redeemed humans, will again have no ability to sin. Follow? 
And originally, we had the ability not to sin, but after the fall, that ability, we have no choice. We are sinners. But one day, the ability to sin will be taken away from us. Praise God. Man, I look forward to that day. God pronounces judgment, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Are you still with me? Are you tracking? Okay, there's, there's about five heads going like this. That means the rest. Okay. Genesis 3, 14 to 19, pronouncing God's judgment. First to the serpent, woman, and the man. First to the serpent, he said, this is the judgment from sin. To the serpent, you will slither on your belly. Actually, that means you will eat dust. Would eat dust means literally lick dust. The translation, you will lick dust. To the woman, she will have pain in childbirth. And to the man, God curses the ground over which he had earlier given Adam dominion over. You have dominion over the ground. You have dominion over all creatures. Now, the ground is cursed. That, that was a part. The cursing of the ground is because of the fall. And the reason that is, is because God had given Adam dominion over creation. So as there was blessing and dominion on Adam, there was dominion over all of creation. But as the curse was now upon Adam, now there's curse upon the entire creation. See how that works? It's curse upon the entire creation. Therefore, thorns and thistles are part of the curse. Thorns and thistles. I wanted to just highlight this because this I found very interesting. These prickly plants that I just don't like. Now, having said that, we have cactuses all over our house. It just makes me think of warm weather. But have you ever tried to move a cactus? Oh, my goodness. We get the gloves on now to move that thing. You pick up the plant, you grab the cactus, and away you go. Don't think you can grab it because if the cactus starts to sway, and we, our cactus is like about six feet high. If it starts to sway, you don't rescue that thing unless you've got gloves on because they're miserable, and then it'll scratch forever. Okay, so anyway, sorry, I got on a tangent about my cactuses. We do like our cactuses. Interesting story about the cactuses. You go to Cuba, cactuses are like their fences. If you see the pictures in Cuba, and I think that's true with a lot of uh, the Caribbean you know, areas, warmer, tropical, subtropic countries, uh, they don't put up wire fences or, or stuff like that. They just cactuses. And I'm thinking, that's a good fence. Like, I'm not jumping over that thing. And not going through it either. So they, they're, cre- they're fences. And, but we create, they're, they're our favorite plants. Uh, so we actually, years ago, funny thing is, is we had a cactus. We took it and, and we, we thought it died. And so we put it on a shelf and didn't water it for how long? Six years. Okay, so we're not good with plants. But we put it on the, sh- and, and it was on top of a sh- bookshelf. And just why we didn't take it down, because, well, who cares? It's just sitting on top of a bookshelf, right? Six years. We took it down. I don't, somebody made a mistake of watering that thing. And it came back to life. Six years. Sorry, I have no idea what this has to do with the topic. But I, with cactuses, except for the fact that it's interesting when it comes to uh, the whole thing about thorns, part of the curse was, again, thorns. Those prickly plants, thorns, were not here before Adam sinned. Actually, a thorn is a modified leaf tightly curled upon itself. That's the definition of thorn. A a thorn is a modified leaf tightly curled upon itself. Theistic evolution, evolution over billions of years, believed that there were millions and billions of years developing prior 
to the creation of mankind. Yet evidence, and this is again, we're coming down to plantology. Evidence. The evidence continues to abound where in fossil records, they are finding thorns, cactus, rose prickles, thistles, and other spiky plants mixed with the fossils of animals and humans. This means that thorns came after Adam's sin. They couldn't have been hundreds of thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago. They came after Adam's sin, an event after the fall, like the time of the global flood. With this, there was a curse upon the ground. Genesis 3. Mankind could no longer get enough nutrients from eating plants growing naturally, but we would need to become farmers. We couldn't just go and pluck them. Now we had to farm for them, working the ground. The ground resists your every step. Have you noticed? I don't know if anybody's grown up in a farm here, but most of us have gardens. I grew up in a farm. You can't plant a crop and come back three years later and expect that thing keeps going. It's taken over by what? Weeds. Weeds, the thorns that are growing. We have to work the ground to get what we had. That's the curse. And that came after the fall. It's spoken of here in Genesis 3. Physical death is a result of the fall. This is the last part of the curse from where we all return to the ground. Returning to the ground can only mean physical death. There's no point in pronouncing this curse of physical death, this punishment, unless there was no physical death before. There was no physical death before. This is the beginning of death. If physical death had previously existed for hundreds of thousands millions of years, billions of years before humans, then this pronouncement makes absolutely no sense. It's a part of punishment of sin. It is because of this curse of physical death, the gospel, the good news is so powerful. Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. Romans 5, and actually you go right down from chapter 5, verse 12, right on down to 21. Don't have the time to read it this morning, but I'm just going to read verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, we've been reading chapter 3, and death through sin, chapter 3, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, chapter 3. And then it continues on talking about the nature of sin in our lives and death as a consequence to that sin. Adam names Eve. The next heading. Verse 20. Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the up to now she's just called woman. Because she would become the mother of all the living. It is now here verse 20 after the fall. Eve is named. Strategic after the fall, Adam bestows a proper name for woman. The name woman is a name merely identifying her to her kind. Remember, the kinds are very significant. Man, kind, woman, kind. The name Eve is the Hebrew word shawa, meaning life. Means life. This is an ambitious statement that 
All humans ever since are descendants of this first human couple. She is the giver of life. Life. She's named now. After the fall. It doesn't mean anything before the fall. But after the fall, now, not just woman, you are now going to give life. Giver of life. Uh, as you can tell, this stands directly opposed to, again, evolution. That states that a population of ape-like creatures evolved into humans. This is where we get into biology and anthropology. Yes, Genesis is a study of both. It's interesting. Did you know that has been being discovered, vast majority of our DNA is inherited only through your mother's line. Vast majority of your DNA. Because it seems that the sperm cells of men cannot pass DNA on. So our mothers give us our DNA. Great discovery in the scientific community in how all people on earth have descended, all people have descended from one single human female. They're discovering that. And it's changed in the scientific community. It is also interesting that there is a parallel account with males, not with DNA, but with the Y chromosome. Evidence from the Y chromosome is consistent with all people being descendants from a single man from the Y chromosome. Again, not from other creatures or apes. And I want to close by talking about clothes. So they sinned. And Adam and Eve, immediately following, tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. Began to strip off fig leaves and cover themselves. But God gives them clothes of skin to be their clothing. This is the first time it happens. This entails that God must have killed the first animal. And I want to pause because this gives, again, my imagination, but I think this is worth it. That first time it happens, remember there has been no death. They've not seen anything die. And then they have sinned, they've partaken through deception and open rebellion. And the first thing they did is they became aware they needed covering. They grab leaves and start to put the covering on and then God comes on the scene. They are ashamed, they are hiding, they hid themselves in the trees, the scripture in Genesis 3 said. And somewhere in there, God takes an animal. And he kills the first animal. Who kills the first animal? God. God provides this. He kills the first animal. And I believe, there's good reason to believe, they watched and witnessed it. You imagine the horror of seeing the first death of everything that lived in harmony with each other. And that innocent animal is killed, gutted in front of you, and the skin's then given to you to wear, to cover your nakedness. The skin's given to cover your nakedness. You imagine how traumatic that must have been. I can only imagine. But it is the story of redemption. In that story, God kills the animal. They are witness to the physical death to understand you are now going to see this over and over and over again. The seriousness of having broken relationship with God. 
they were given a free lesson on redemption price. Hebrews 9, 22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Here, listen. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Physically, God clothed their nakedness, but spiritually, he covered their sin in the very first act called atonement. He atoned. Atonement at one meant back with God. So yeah, physically now, their guilt from each other, their shame is covered, but inside it's still there. The skins represent something spiritual. And from you will see from the covenants later on, the covenants of Abraham and on it goes, you see the killing of animals, the altars, the sacrifice, and all it ever did was cover sin. It was like cover the clothes, but the guilt's there. Cover the clothes, but the guilt's there. Cover the clothes, the guilt's still there. It just covers over for a period. You're at one now, but you continue to sin. You're at one now, but you're going to have to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Animals die. Animals die. Do they deserve to die? No. They die on your behalf. And it takes us right through to the picture of Jesus Christ, who God sent forth his son. Unblemished, pure and holy. Like the animals. They didn't sin. They were innocent. But he sent forth his son so that through his son we might have life. And the son had to die. Blood shed, forgiveness of sin. But after that moment of the death of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, no longer is it ever referred to as covering. No longer is there any need for the altars and animals to be used because they could never do a good job anyway. You had to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. But when Jesus' life was laid on the cross and he rose again, he broke this curse going all the way back to Genesis 3. He broke the curse. And no longer would we require Innocent animals, they couldn't do it anyway. No longer could we require death on that basis. Jesus, once and for all, read the book of Hebrews, once and for all, he did it. Now, we have a living way through Jesus Christ. And when we call on the name of the Lord, we are saved. When we surrender our lives to his lordship, we are saved. So why is it we want to go back to the world? Why is it we want to abandon him? For the things around us, except the enemy of our soul, is still tempting us to say, God really didn't mean that. It really doesn't work. It's really ineffective. You are too guilty. You're the exception to the case. Whatever. To lie, to deceive, to misguide. But what a glorious redemptive story that was unveiled here. The lessons are five. Number one, to approach God, one must have proper covering even to this day. Number two, the man-made covering was not acceptable. Three, God himself, you can't do it. I can't do it. No priest, no pastor, no bishop, no prime minister or, or, or president can do it. God himself must provide the covering. God didn't ask them to kill the animal. He had to do it. Number four, the proper covering required the shedding of blood. And five, God's grace, God's grace provided for them. For the covering was given before they were kicked out of the garden. They were about to go into a horrible world. Yeah, they were the first of the human race. We're going to talk next session about the population explosion. 
But as they walk out of this place of tranquility, they walk out covered. And that's God's grace. He does not send us today anywhere where his grace is not more than sufficient to meet your need, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, your family, wherever it is, his grace is more than sufficient to cover that. So in conclusion, Genesis chapter 2, the chapter before, ends at the high point of an incredible, beautiful marriage relationship, Adam and Eve in a perfect world. Oh, if we could have just stayed there. But we came to Genesis 3 today, and it explains the sharp drop from this perfection into a fallen world in which we live in 2020. But the next time we get together, I hate to say, the worst is still yet to come. This was the beginning. The degradation of sin goes crazy. Crazy. Heaps upon itself. Heaps upon itself. And we're going to talk about that in the next session. In that, God said, I am grieved that I ever made man. You imagine? I'm grieved that I ever made him. Genesis 1 and 2, it's so beautiful. But then the degradation of sin over over generations of people where God's heart is broken. A people that have so turned, and not just turned away from God, but they have heaped sin upon sin, upon sin, upon sin, that the flood comes. You know, sometimes we, God gets a hard rap. How dare you kill everybody? Oh, but back it up a bit. He didn't put this in motion. He put in motion salvation's plan so that we not have to die in our sins. Isn't that amazing, God, we serve? I trust that today, that you have opened your heart. And if you are here and you've not opened your heart to the Lordship of Jesus, maybe that tug in your spirit, that maybe you're feeling that shame, maybe you're feeling the weight of it, and rightfully so, that God... You know, even when I finish this, I want to get saved all over again. Because God, how great is my God. And I'm not up there. I'm down here. Oh, in his eyes, he loves me unconditionally. But I see him as the one who has paid it all for me. So, Father in heaven, I thank you that, God, your word is not foggy. Your word is not unclear. You didn't leave us out in the dark. You've you've given us, through the inspiration of these writings, I believe that Noah, who was able to put together the generations, and then Moses getting a hold of that, and under the inspiration, writing the Pentateuch, writing the first five books, that, Lord, you gave us the origin of us, the origin of us of sin and evil. And yet, God, we see in the midst of this, not a moment passed, but that you didn't step in to intervene on behalf of your family. Lord, I pray for each man and woman and teenager here this morning, those listening to my voice, that, God, we would likewise make that full-out commitment to Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to ask, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, just for a minute here before we go. We're going to dismiss in just one minute. 
If you're here this morning and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus' lordship, you're still in the place under the consequences, under the curse of sin. You're still there. Only through Jesus, what he has done for you by his death and his resurrection, only through believing in him, only through confessing your sins, he said, this by faith, you can't merit it, you can't work it up, but it is a measure of your faith where you call on him and you say, God, save me. Not just today, but today and forevermore. You live a life of freedom in Christ. If you're here this morning and you've not done that, maybe there's one or two here, and you've not done that. You've maybe gone to church, you've, you've been around all these things, but that doesn't help. It comes to an individual personal experience with your loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've made that decision to follow Jesus, you don't need to respond to what I'm about to ask. You just give God thanks. Lift up your heart in thanksgiving. But if you're here this morning and you have not done that, I'm going to ask you, if you're here and you say, Pastor, pray for me today, today, I want forgiveness of my sins. And if that is you, I want to pray with you. And if you believe that, we pray together, God will forgive you of your sins today. If there's anybody here very quickly, would you raise your hand? I will pray for you. Is there anybody? It's very quickly. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. So, Father, I thank you, God, that, God, you have spoken through your word so clearly. And that, God, you have, I believe, as we disembark from our time together, as we disperse to our homes, that, Lord, there will be great rejoicing in that we serve a risen Savior. And that the sin nature is no longer in control. Oh, you're going to nag on us and we aren't perfect, but you are. And we serve a perfect God. We serve a good God. And you are perfecting us through Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for so great a salvation. Pray your blessings upon each. We pray in the powerful, redeeming name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.